As we start the year, I thought I would ask what will hopefully be uh, an encouraging question by the time we get to the answer this morning, and that's this. Can we really expect to understand and obey the Bible? Can we really expect to understand and obey the Bible? How many of you are decided to begin a reading plan at the start of the year, and that's just kind of your rhythm, and that's how you, how you do things. Go ahead. I know this is like, when people ask questions and they, they don't expect people to participate, I expect you to participate. Okay, so how many of you are doing that? that reading plan started fresh, maybe January 1, or that kind of thing, okay? Um, I, again, we're, we're doing this reading plan together just as a way to encourage a community around God's Word. We find that the community helps helps us be the kind of people we want to be, and so that's why we're doing that. Um, how many of you are finding that it's already challenging to keep it up? I've got my little, my little checklist thing in my Bible, and I'm a couple days behind, if I'm going to be honest with you, already. Um, and there's lots of different ways and, and reasons why we're, we're motivated to, to look at Scripture. Um, hopefully, uh, most of us here are are pursuing a vibrant, real relationship with Jesus. And if we want to know Jesus, we need to know his word, and so that's why we're doing it. It could be other things, though. You're, maybe your parents are on your case. Um, maybe you just feel guilty. Maybe you're, you're curious about the Bible. You've never become a Christian, but you're, you hear all these people talk about it, so you just want to know what it's saying. Um, Maybe you've heard this every year um, in the blogosphere. There's always these statistics that fly around about how simple it is to read the Bible and to get through the Bible. Um, so just to get the kind of guilt dose out there before we get to the gospel, uh, I'll quote some of these to you. Um, it says it takes 71 hours to read through the Bible out loud. And if you listen to the Bible for 12 minutes a day on an audio Bible, you'll get through the whole thing in a year. A slow reader can read almost half the books in the Bible in less than a half an hour. Isn't that amazing? That one amazed me this year. Almost half the books in less than a half an hour. Now you might hear those things and um, it's, it's wise for us to develop the self-control and the discipline by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the means and the channels of grace that he has laid out for us, right? That's part of how God works in us and matures us, and that's true. But what if our commitment to taking in the Word of God was not only about our discipline, but also about our faith and the kind of things we believe? So I know many of us have, have laid out probably good intentions for the year, and you know the, the shelf life of those. But I am I'm convinced that if, that if we, and, if, and I include myself in this, personally trusted all that the Bible says concerning itself, consistency would be less of an issue for us. If we believe the things that the Bible just says about itself, consistency would be less of an issue for us. And so, what does the scripture say about itself, about the scripture? We're back to our question, can we really expect to understand what the Bible is saying? And so my answer is this, by grace, and this is our point this morning, by grace, God's word is accessible, understandable, and doable. My hope this morning is, is not to chastise you, but to encourage you, and to build up your faith in what God says about his own word, and may that be part of how he helps us as we pursue him. Before we read our text, I want to give you a little bit of context. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14 this morning. But I want to kind of set the stage before we read it. Okay, the book of Deuteronomy, as you're kind of finding it, uh, it's written to a coming generation of, of folks who are ready to enter the promised land. They're, they're ready to go. And Moses is preaching, he's exhorting them, he's calling them back to um, covenant renewal and repentance. You remember what God did with this covenant. This book is structured a lot like the covenant documents of the day between a king and their servant. Um, and so it starts off and it with a couple of chapters of history and explains that. And then Moses in chapters 4 through 11 gives some sermons and gives kind of the central charge. But then there's kind of the details of the covenant that happen in chapters 12 through 25. Uh, stuff that um, you might struggle to read in your personal devotional time. Uh, 
then it wraps up in chapters 27 through 30 in, in kind of this covenant ceremony. Uh, and then 31 through 34, the rest are kind of looking forward. But it's in that 27 to 30 uh, section that we want to look at this morning. Uh, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 27, just to kind of eyeball it real quickly, in chapter 28, you'll notice that there are blessings and curses promised. If you kind of compare them, uh, there's... The blessing section is a lot shorter than the curses section. And if you read this on your own time, you might want to like not read it late at night because it's, it's a frightening chapter. God lays out the curses for what uh, will happen if they, if they forsake him. And so this kind of becomes the, um, the main material that the prophets use to call back to later on once Israel's history continues to say, remember what God said? He would bless you for this. He would curse you for this. They're kind of like the enforcers of this section of the Bible. And basically, they just expound this and explain this as they act in their role of prophet. And so that's what's going on in 27 and 28. But then you kind of get to the conclusion of um, Moses' final sermon here in 29 through 30. And this, there's this covenant renewal at Moab that happens in chapter 29. This is kind of the uh, conclusion. If you look at it, in the beginning of chapter 30, uh, verse 1, you'll notice that, that Israel is going to fail at this. Here's what it says in chapter 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and he goes on and explains that. If in chapter 31, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant I have made with them. So Moses knows from the start, and that's why there's a lot more about the cursing than the blessing, that Israel is going to fail to do this. And the reason why they're going to fail to do this, it says in chapter 29, verse 4, it says this, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. There's something that happens between chapters 29 and 30, where in 29 they don't have the heart they need but then in chapter 30, Moses, by the Spirit of God, looks down the corridors of time and sees that there is going to be a time when God's people are given a renewed heart to obey. Listen to what it says in chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, we read that before, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I commanded you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Look down at verse 6. How is that possible? How do God's people return and have that kind of attitude towards the Lord? Verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So the difference between chapter 29 and chapter 30 is that God provides the heart to his people in some way so that they're going to love and obey him. And that's the setting in which, looking to this future day, that we hear the words that we're going to look at more closely this morning in verses 11 through 14. I know that's a long introduction, but you need to know how to frame verses 11 through 14 as we think about it. So let's go ahead and stand, uh, if you're physically able, just in respect to the Word of God, and I'll read for us Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. This is Moses speaking. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. 
in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Verse 14 is really going to serve as our outline this morning. Uh, the catch words are accessible, understandable, and doable. So it says, the word is near you, it's accessible. It's understandable, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. And it's doable so that you can do it. So we're going to look at those three aspects of God's word. So God's word is accessible. It says... It's not far off. It's not in the heavens somewhere. It's not across an ocean, ocean which to them would have been impossibly far away. Right? To us, it's like, well, you just get on a plane and you go. Okay. Uh, but to them, the obvious answer to those questions would be, no one can do that. Right? No one can um, go to the heavens, and no one can reach to the depths or the distance of the sea. No one can do that. You know, so much time has passed since God's word has been finalized and formed that we often forget that God's people, for, for a long time, did not have this final published word that we have. They were off with their family and maybe the elders of their community knew some things about scripture and occasionally they would, they would take a trip uh, you know, to the temple for a feast and would maybe hear some teaching in that context, but for the most part it was... This oral tradition, it was their family speaking and passing along uh, the words that God had spoken through Moses. We forget that, that this idea that we have a contained, scripturated word is, is, is not something that God's people have always had. Even now, there are several groups of people who, who struggle to even have God's written word. Have you ever seen those videos by like the Bible Society or those things where where there's a, an underground church in China and the, the boxes of the Bibles finally show up. You should, you should YouTube that. It's, a, it's a humbling. You take these boxes in and they unwrap them and people are just jumping all over them, like, you know, Black Friday at Walmart or whatever. It's a totally different thing. And as you watch, one video I watched had them just digging in and ripping them open and, and then there was just this when there's a hunger, right, and you get together for a feast at Thanksgiving, and there's all the noise and all, but then you start eating and there's just this hush. It's like it was, what it was like, these people have access to the written word of God. This fact was not lost on the Israelites. They knew that, that how special it was to have access to God's word, that it's actually what made them unique as a people. We get to hear the voice that spoke the universe into existence. That's the voice we have access to. We've rejected God, but he bothers to speak to us. Listen to an earlier passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. This is again Moses preaching. He says, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding, speaking of the law. In the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? He goes on, for ask now the days that are past which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. What is that? Verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Their God spoke to them. And that's what made them unique and different. God spoke to us. And that set them apart as a people. And they understood that. Does that strike us in a fresh way this morning that we have access to the Word of God? 
have access to the mind of God, to the commands of God, to the thoughts of God, to the desires of God. What a privilege to be able to say with confidence that I have heard from God. I know what He thinks. I know what He expects. God communicates successfully because he is personal. He's not indifferent about being understood. That's why he illustrates things. That's why he writes with different ways of writing in song and in poem and in story and in proverb. And that's why he says things differently where he comes along and encourages you and he comes along and corrects you and he, and he teaches you and he instructs you and he reminds you. That's why he does what he does. Because he's a personal God who speaks to us. See, God insists that his word gets relayed all throughout Deuteronomy. Moses is saying, make sure to tell your children this all the time. Write it on your house if you've got to. Get it across to the next generation what God has done. If you kept reading in chapter 31, you'd hear Moses insist on the law being read every seven years. And the reason he gives in verse 12 of chapter 31 is, he says, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Make sure. If there's a breakdown and parents aren't doing that every seven years, get everybody together and make sure everyone hears what God says. In chapter 32, um, actually 31, God gives Moses instructions to write a song that would correct them because it would get stuck in the heads of their kids. Look at chapter 31, verse 19. This is the Lord speaking. This is a great instruction. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Look at verse 21. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. How would it do that? Parenthetical statement. For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. Do you think God's interested in communicating? He's planting songs in their little kids. So that when they forget their little kids walking around the house, and God will curse you when you do this, and it'll all come flooding back. I mean, if you read the song in chapter 32, someone should write a song. It's amazing. It's depressing, but it's a great and necessary thing. Does it strike us in a fresh way that we have access to the Word of God? I was talking with a skeptical person a few weeks back who was saying something to the effect that we all have our different versions of who God is and that's okay and he's talking about how we're limited as people and we couldn't possibly know with any kind of certainty and he, he was basically saying Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 12 who could ascend to heaven and know what God thinks who could go across the ocean I mean he didn't say that but that's kind of what he was saying we can't eavesdrop what do you mean so because of that, it's just kind of everyone on their own idea. And so I said to him, I agree with you and I disagree with you. I agree that if we're merely limited to us and our own understanding, we couldn't know the mind of God. We can't twist his arm, right? And we're limited in our perspective. And yes, we can't climb up to heaven to eavesdrop. But I disagree with you because of this question. What if God came to us what if God clarified and spoke in history and in time to people? Would that change the idea that everyone can just come to their own conclusions? It would have to, right? If God breaks into history and speaks and says something and records it and then holds us accountable for knowing it, then that's a very different story. So yes, we can't ascend to the heavens, but if, what if the God of the heavens down to us, clarifies things. It's a whole different thing. This is precisely what God has done through his word and through his son. God has revealed what he is like. I was pleading with this man, just look at it. 
Do you think that God could do that? Yeah. Well, that's the claim of the Christian, is that God has. That's the essence of Christianity. Maybe a picture of this that might help us is there was a time, I can't remember which of our kids did this, but we would play hide and seek. And they would go off and hide in a very obvious place because they were young enough to not really know the nuances yet. And when they hid, they would close their eyes. <laughs> and so we would seek them and we would find them and we would say, I found you. And they'd say, no, you didn't because I don't see you. <laughs> so they, they thought it was about, anyway, very personal interpretation of hide and seek, right? And I think that's, that's what's happening with humanity. God has come. He's revealed what he's like in history. He's come in person. And yet, the light of the world's come, but we love the darkness more. And keep our eyes shut to these things. Which is why the psalmist prays, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. God's word is sufficient. He's revealed what's necessary to know but our eyes must be opened to that. So, God's word is near to us. Moses is saying that. We know that. God's word is also understandable. Understandable. This is really encouraging to me when he says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. He's saying it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. You see, what, what Moses is doing is preventing them from making the excuse that when they fall under judgment or when God rebukes them for their sinful independence, that they say, well, we just never knew. We couldn't understand what you meant. So we can't be accountable for that. Moses is preventing that excuse. Now, a lot of us here probably are, are of the persuasion that the Bible is actually the Word of God. Maybe you're not. And uh, if not, I encourage you to talk to others and continue to seek that out. But the next two words, understandable and doable, might feel like a, a bit more of a stretch for our faith and a greater challenge to believe. Right? Because you have access to a lot of things that you don't understand. Right? I could go online and look up the Mandarin, you know, and listen to it and try to understand Mandarin. But, so even though I have access to it, I, I don't have understanding. God's word is understandable. Yet the Bible claims that it is clear and understandable. There, there's a few qualifications we need to make. But first, let's just deal with that claim. If you think about it, if to say that God is not clear in his word is to say that he's a poor communicator. And I don't think we're prepared to say that, right? There's, there's all kinds of implications. If God's word is unclear, there's lots of things that are, are problematic. Like, how, how could God's judgment be fair if people couldn't understand him? How would he be able to command anything if it couldn't be clear? How could God entrust us from uh, taking his word and passing it along to others, even to children, if it's not clear? So the scripture claims to be perfect, and it's perfect because of its author, Right? And it's understandable because God is personal. God's word says what God wants said. And God's word does what God wants done. So the, this law, the Lord, it's described in Psalm 19, is, is perfect. It's reviving the soul. The testimonies of it are sure. And it image you'll come across in Scripture all the time for the Word of God is this illuminating thing, this, this thing that sheds light. All throughout Psalm 119, you'll see that. So the Scriptures in claim that the Word of God is clear, and Jesus affirms that when he comes. Even in the Gospel of Matthew, there's six different times that he asks, haven't you read? And he'll quote the Old Testament. Wait a minute, haven't didn't you guys read that? Like, he assumes that when we read the Bible, we'll be able to understand it to a degree. And even down to the tense of a verb, or the, 
you know, whether something's plural or singular or not, he's like, hey, didn't you realize? And he's saying that because the scriptures are clear. He asked Nicodemus in John 3.10, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And he's able to say that because the scriptures are clear. Now, what are some qualifications to that? There's more, but I just wanted to cite two of them. The first one is that God speaks clearly, though some things are harder to understand than other things. And the Bible even acknowledges that. Okay, listen to 2 Peter 3, 15-16, where he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, affirming what Paul is writing, it's scripture, it's good. But then he says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> Which the ignorant and unstable twist to, to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So by saying that the Bible is clear is not saying that every aspect of the Bible is as clear as every other part. Okay? It assumes that there is work to be done to understand it. Okay? It's not just also you're reading and you're mired in the like the laws of the Levitical system and all this stuff. You know, that's going to be different than reading a different part of scripture. And the Bible accounts for that. There's a great confession called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's uh, it's deep and it's kind of hard to get it's pretty dead stuff, but I just want to read read it to you, the section on the clarity of Scripture. I'm going to read it slowly, because I had to read it really slowly when I read it. Here's what it says. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. We just said. Some parts are harder to understand than others. Nor alike clear unto all. Meaning, not everybody gets it. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded or explained and open in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, educated, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, meaning the way that you hear God's word and the ways that he's planned for, may attain a sufficient understanding of them. Translation, <laughs> we can know what we need to know. And isn't that so good to know? <laughs> Sometimes you read the Bible and you're just like, man, if I need that today, I'm in trouble. Because <laughs> I don't get what it's saying, you know? But isn't it good to know that, that God writes his word in a way that is sufficiently clear? It doesn't mean that your curiosities about every little thing are going to be answered, right? It's, it's a book of material about certain things. So let's not pretend like it can answer your question like you know, a video on YouTube could. It's not the same as that. But it is sufficiently clear, even though some things are harder to understand than others. Okay? The second qualification or objection to that is that God speaks clearly, even though not all people will understand. In 2 Peter it said that some are going to twist Paul's words. They're kind of hard to understand, but some are going to twist them even to their own destruction. In 2 Timothy 3.7, it describes the disobedient as, quote, always learning and never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. Or corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So, though the scriptures are understandable, not all will understand them. And you can't always measure if something is clear by asking if people understood it or not, right? This is like the preacher's soul, hope, and life sometimes, right? <laughs> but the clarity of Scripture says that through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, God's personal word is intelligible or understandable to any who respond to it humbly, diligently, and willingly. You see, there, there's more going on in understanding the Bible than just like the education you have and the words on the page. So much more going on. Now, this basic understanding that not everyone's going to understand, 
even though it's clear, we see that in our life experience, right? The best communicator in the world is still at the mercy of the listener, aren't they? That's kind of how that works. Both sides have to do their job for understanding. And have you ever had the uh, privilege of giving a long, clear explanation for something? And for someone to say, what? Oh, sorry. Uh, could you repeat that? <laughs> I made it as clear as humanly possible, but there has to be a listener. Or have you noticed how children, when things like chores or less desirable things come up, there's, there's kind of a, a temporary deafness that happens in them for some reason. There's kind of a selectivity on hearing because their willingness is low. And so listening and willingness are both involved in, in understanding what God is speaking through his word. And it's possible to have selective hearing when you read the Bible. Sometimes you and I avoid hearing from God precisely because we know exactly what he's going to say. Right? It's not a clarity problem. It's a willingness problem. Now we see this in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just in case you think we've made this up or something. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 explains that there is there's something supernatural that's happening when we understand Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Understanding what the Scriptures mean is something that is granted by God to us. Even as believers, right? As a non-believer, you, you have to have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating work of God, to open your eyes to see the glory of Christ. And when you do that, you, you are drawn to Him. But even as believers, we need the Holy Spirit to prompt and prod and illuminate what is meant by the Scriptures when we read them. There's something supernatural going on, which is why when Jesus teaches parables or He teaches things, there's some people who are just struck to the core and some people are just going... I don't get it. Another reason why there's this divide between those who understand and those who don't is because the scriptures are about Jesus. And if there is no desire to exalt and love and praise and obey the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures will not be discernible to us. Jesus told this to the Pharisees in John 5, 38-40, when he said, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see how the understanding of Scripture is something that is God-given. It's God-originated, you could say. Now, this work of the Holy Spirit is what Moses is talking about back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, when he's talking about this odd image of a circumcised heart. A circumcised heart. Interesting image. Now, what is he talking about there? He's talking about the circumcision was the sign of the covenant that you were marked as God's people, essentially, right, in the Old Testament. But there's always this understanding that just by having that done to you physically doesn't make you a worshiper of God. In fact, later in the New Covenant, the New Testament, Romans 2, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and by the letter. So, Moses, in the sovereignty of God, is talking about the era of the New Covenant, 
where God would come and replace and transform the human heart. That difference between chapter 29 and chapter 30 is the fulfillment of the new covenant that's promised even in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and these things that, that God promised that the apostles were saying at Pentecost, look, God's promise has come true. So, the circumcision of the heart is this inward transformation that happens by the power of God to God's people in the new covenant because of what Jesus has done and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now the heart is, is the, what's called the control center of the person. Okay, it's where we trust, it's where we treasure, it's where we value things. Tim Keller describes it this way, I loved it. He said, what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. If that's true, if our heart determines the, the, the rationality of our mind, if it determines the, our desires and our emotions and our actions in our will, then of course we need a new one. Right? And isn't it good of God to give us a new one? Like he says in Deuteronomy 30. Which means that a circumcised heart is not the heart that's walking around going, oh, i got to go obey Jesus again. Here comes the offering bag. Here comes the ministry reminder on my hand. The circumcision of the heart allows us to love God in such a way that obedience is our desire. Thank you, Jesus. It's it's not this drudgery that is talked about in chapter in chapter thirty, verse six. Notice what it says again, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that what. So that you'll fulfill all the commands of the law and you'll actually do what it says. And eventually, but it says, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Two other times in verses 16 and 20 of chapter 30, there's a connection between obedience and the love of God. That those things are partners which explains why obedience isn't drudgery, it's a result of love. And Keller gave a great illustration of this, where he said, when I was growing up, my parents would ask me to pick things up off, you know, ask me to do things, and I'll just use an example of picking up clothes off, you know, on your bedroom floor. And I was like, oh, okay. But his, he was newly married, and his lovely wife, who, who he just adored, said, hey, Tim, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> oh, sure, honey. You know, picks it right up, no problem. Same command, different motivation, different, different sense of obedience because of love. Right? Now, I assume he loves his parents, but you know what I mean. <laughs> same same uh, command, different motivation. It's why John Newton, in a song... He's uh, an old guy, long gone, but brilliant writer, wrote this lyric. He said, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. Read that again. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. These two things, they're married. And the circumcision of the heart is what allows that to happen. Trying to obey God without knowing him is drudgery. And that's exactly why the world looks at the obedience of the Christian as oppressive slavery. And it's why the Christian, from inside a relationship with God, knows that it's thrilling freedom. So, God speaks to two qualifications for why God's word is understandable. He speaks clearly, though some things are harder to understand, and though some won't understand. Okay. Now you might be feeling even worse at this point, which that's what you need to feel. I'm fine with that. Okay, <laughs> um, 
but uh, you might think, well, great, his word is understandable, and yet I don't get it a lot. Why is that? And you might despair, and you might think that that's worse, but I would, I would submit to you that I think that's actually okay. That's a better scenario than questioning whether or not the word from God is clear. It would be like if there's a, you know, wherever the standard of time is kept, is it Switzerland or, I don't know, maybe I just thought of that because of Swiss watches or something, but somewhere in the world, there's like an official timekeeper. England? Thank you. Thank you, Veronica. Good, good Brit right there. Um, so in England, that's where uh, time essentially is kept, right? Says Veronica. <laughs> but let's say we, we went to sleep tonight, and somehow that standard of time got all messed up. And satellites, you know, all over the universe broke down. And we woke up and no one really had a true sense of time. And you, like every appointment you had, you'd have to call and say, well, what time do you have? What time do I have? Okay, well, let's meet then at this time. Can you imagine the chaos and the confusion that would, it would come from just losing that definitive standard of time versus the power goes out and you have to go through your house and reset all your clocks and that's kind of a, a pain. But there's still a standard out there you see, that, that's kind of the difference between what we're talking about here. God's word is the standard. It's set, it's clear, it's accessible, it's understandable. This is good news, right? This is a good thing. And, and we will need to orient our lives to, to understand it better by doing that in community and by listening to things and by studying hard and meditating and being consistent and all those things. But it's better to have the standard be clear and for us to say, always, the problem must be with me. God, help me. Or, brother, sister in Christ, help me. God's word is understandable. Praise be to God. Right? Last thing, God's word is doable. Moses ends verse 14 so that you can do it. He says, it's not too hard for you. Now, the ironic angle that's playing in the background of those words is that God says to Moses that they're going to fail. So Moses is saying, you can do it, but God is saying they won't. They're going to fail. And they're going to have to face the curse of being dispersed and all kinds of things that you read in chapter 28. It's a good reminder that our problem is not knowing what to do. Our problem is oftentimes not having the power to do it. So there's lots of self-help books out there in the world, right? There's unlimited access to those. But how we actually have the power to change and become the people that we know we ought to be, that's where the gospel has a voice that's unique, that explains how it is that God can actually change and allow us to live the lives we know that we ought to live. Now Moses' law shows the glory of God's holiness, right, and character, and it also shows the impossibility of obedience apart from God. You read that all the time in the New Testament, right? That the law, part of the function of the law is to show us how incapable we are and how sinful we are. And so you think, well, is this just a mean trick? You know, is this like God setting up his people for failure? You can do it. No, you can't. <laughs> like, which, which is it? But remember the context. He, Moses is describing this future time when there would be this circumcision of the heart and that God would be empowering obedience in the hearts of his people. And then that sounds a lot more doable, right? So the question is not, well, I have the ability and the moral capability of obeying. It's, does God have the power to work in me in such a way as to create obedience? And the answer to that is yes, because it gives us a new control center. And so it says God's word is so near to you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. Genuine obedience is possible. And this is where we find the gospel. The good news that God has accomplished this. 
that the gospel has both in it the concession that you cannot do it on your own. And if you think you can, that will keep you from being a Christian. And at the same time, it, it says that you can't actually obey now by the power of the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done and because of uh, God's nearness and God's power. In Romans 3, chapter 20, chapter 3, verse 20, it says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, Israel can do it with God's help, but they won't. They can't do it apart from the circumcised heart. There has to be help from the outside. There has to be a righteousness or a way to live and the power to live that way that comes from God. And that's exactly why Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30 in Romans chapter 10. This is where we're, we're getting close to landing the plane. It's like the pilot going out and saying, we're descending now. And like 20 minutes later, you finally do it. That's kind of what this is. So Romans 10, verses 1 through 10, is where God explains how the gospel is this alternative source of righteousness, and he actually quotes Deuteronomy 30 to say just how near God's word is. Okay? Here's what he says. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Quote, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, the weight of the law will pulverize you without the grace of God. You cannot obey and love God without God loving you first and intervening first. And so Paul is saying, in the same way that the law was near and clear to Israel, God's word, Jesus Christ, is present in Paul's good news message. The word was near to Israel in their mouth and heart, and now Jesus Christ is near to us as well. He is as near to us as the message itself. Isn't that amazing that God is present in that way? Paul says that Jesus is so near that belief in our hearts and confession with our mouths that he is who he says he is, is the indication that you love God. That being right with God acknowledges these actions of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that it's the way, that trusting that is the way to the transformed heart that can obey. So Paul is looking at Moses, interpreting him, saying, Moses was talking about the gospel. Moses was talking about the nearness of the word of God and the person of Jesus. It's that help from God in us that leads to that confession, that leads to that belief, and that leads to the fulfillment of those laws and demands. It gives, this gospel is what gives Moses hope to write what he does. So God's word is doable because of what Christ has done. And God's word is doable because the Spirit indwells and gives us this circumcised heart. So don't misunderstand me and just think, you guys can do it. Go out there and obey. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that built into the gospel, even from the book of Deuteronomy, is this idea that God will will do something in you to create a love in you for him that will manifest itself in obedience. That is a miracle. And that happens through the word of God. So, we said in the beginning, this little phrase, by God's grace, God's word is accessible and understandable and doable, Right? And that's why we had to preface it with that. Because it's God's grace that initiates the conversation. It's God's grace that translates and clarifies God's word. It's God's grace that gives us this new heart that creates love for God and joy for obedience. So, 
Some here need new hearts through the gospel. Verse 14 will crush some people here if you try to do that apart from the work of God through Jesus. So we're going to have a time of communion, and I'd encourage that you this morning to, to think about these things and to think about the impossibility. If, if you even just took what you think you should be and the life that you know you should live, you know you can't do that. Just start with that and know that God's grace is sufficient in the person of Jesus. But others of us just need an encouraging reminder that God's word, by his grace, that it's near to us. That it's understandable. You can understand it. And that it's also doable by the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope that encourages you. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts uh, for the receiving of communion. Lord Jesus, we, we give you praise and thanks that you are our merit, you are our righteousness, you are our sacrifice, you are our priest and our lamb and our judge and our redeemer and our coming king. God, our good is wrapped up in what you have done. Our well-being is, is the result of your gracious initiative towards us. And so we, we thank you for that, God. Thank you that you have started this, this work of grace. It's continuing to just roll through nations. Thank you that it grabbed someone here in the Maddox shelter a few nights ago. Thank you, Jesus. God, you are at work. You are doing things in our community and in our hearts and in our homes. And we pray, God, that you would... Help us to, to draw near to your word, not to get to the end of the year and say, yay, I did it, but to love you more, to know you better, to, to obey your commands, as Derry reminded us last week. God, we need you and we need the right motivation in pursuing you. So would you do both those things in us, out of the body? Would you use the simple uh, plan that, that some will, will use and adopt and and may it just lead to conversation and lead to greater uh, understanding of who you are and what you're doing uh, in the world. Thank you, God, that you've made your word clear. You've communicated successfully to your people. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.